I'll be back. Um, I work in the Dominican Republic uh, at a seminary there that uh, I'll be back. Um, I work in the Dominican Republic uh, at a seminary there that, um, and so God is really blessing the work that we do. Uh, when you see me or my family or think to pray for us, pre- please pray for our students. Uh, we have about 30 of them, um, men, and each of those guys represent uh, a different church body and, and, um, and the work that they're doing. Pray that God would use what we do to bless them and encourage them and really help them in their poverty. You know, many of these guys, they're, they're genuinely poor, um, but even at a greater level, they experience poverty and education and, and really just equipping to do the work they do. So please pray that God would use us to equip and encourage those men. Uh, this morning, it's my job to help us transition from our series on being mentored in prayer, which I hope that you were as encouraged and blessed as I was through that. God really has taught me more about genuinely how to pray, how to be a prayer through that series, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but my job is to help us to transition from that series of teaching to a series uh, that we're calling Journey of Faith. And so uh, you'll, you have heard about Journey of Faith or uh, Journey of Faith or will hear more. You might hear it called J-O-F. And J-O-F reflects our intention to, to become debt-free as a church. The only jet, debt that we do have is this building, um, our office buildings, and, and we're getting pretty close to having it paid off. And so uh, we're very excited about that. And, and the most exciting thing is that once we have these require these, these, these responsibilities taken care of, then we can engage in God's mission locally and globally to a greater degree. That's one of the most exciting aspects of it, being debt-free so that we can use those resources that God has given us to do greater things that God might be glorified. So 13 years ago, North Wakers felt that God was leading us to build a space that would give us greater ability to serve and minister to our friends, family, and community. And I would dare say that most of you sitting here today are, are, are sitting in the, the blessing, the, the benefit of that action that those people took so long ago to build this place, to take on the responsibility of funding and building this place. So for now, JOF is the way that we talk about pr- paying off our mortgage. But what you have to understand is that that God is using J-O-F to, to do something much greater than simply pay down debt. And so God is using J-O-F for many of us to train our hearts in generosity. I've had the pleasure and uh, blessing of investing in J-O-F for over a decade, first as a single college student, then as a newlywed, then as a father of one, then two, then three, then four, then five. And so for six of those years, I was a student at Southeastern Seminary doing the thing that seminary students do, uh, as poor as any other seminary student, but God gave us grace to give to JOF. And then so for four of those years, we were doing all of that on a youth pastor's salary, and then for five of those, we've done that on a missionary's salary. And so as glitzy as, you know, the title of youth pastor and missionary is, they don't really pay that well. And so God's grace has, has been evident. And in that giving, and, and, and there's been hundreds of excuses to stop giving toward JOF. They've presented themselves over the years, lost jobs, hospitalized children, living overseas, but God has used those times to train us and teach us that generosity 
is not seasonal or circumstantial. Because God's generosity towards me and my family is not seasonal or circumstantial. And so as we approach God and his word, let's take a moment to reflect on his generosity in Christ towards us. Father, we do pray that your generosity to us would not be lost, that we would not be forgetful of what you have done in Christ, that in Christ you have brought the poorest of spiritual beings to yourself and made them rich members, spiritually speaking, in your family. All of the blessing, all of the inheritance, it's ours in Christ. We bask in that, even if for a moment as we prepare to approach you in your word, to hear from you through your word, and we ask that you would continue to lavish those riches on us through your word, that we might hear you speak to us. You would give us a a spirit of conviction. Holy Spirit, you would speak to us and move us and transform our desires to be ones that align with your purposes, explained clearly in your word. God, we love you, and we are humbled in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. First Timothy in chapter 6 reads like this. As for the rich in this, pre- in this present age, charge them, to, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is writing to his friend and fellow worker, Timothy, and he's helping him think about how to lead the church with all of its different types of people and circumstances and stages of life. And he gives specific instructions on how to lead people through these different positions in community and living. And he mentions, earlier in the book, he mentions Older men and younger men. He mentions younger widows and older widows. And he gives specific ways about how those widows should live. Then he mentions slaves and how they should interact with their masters. And here we see him mention the rich members of the church community, the church family. Last week, I was uh, Steph had gone into the store to do something. And Shepard, my youngest son, he and I were sitting in the car together. And he, he says, Dad... Is it okay to ask people if they're rich? And so I said, uh, of course. Uh, I told him it's, it's not okay to ask people if they're rich because that could make them feel very uncomfortable, and, and we wouldn't want to do that. And so with that being said, I'm going to do the thing that all parents do, do as I say, not as I do. And so by a show of hands, who here is rich financially speaking? I want to take a moment and introduce you to someone, a friend of mine. His name is Brother Auguste, and Brother Auguste lives in a community very close to mine in the Dominican Republic. He's about 60 years old. He's Haitian. He's lived in the Dominican Republic for so long that he's mostly forgotten how to speak Haitian Creole. He only speaks a type of Spanish that I don't understand very much at all. And 
And he's in his early 60s, uh, but if you saw him, you'd think he was about 90 or so. And so he often walks through my neighborhood. He hunches over as he walks, and he's usually carrying something. And usually it's a, a bag of bottles. And he's looking for bottles that he can sell for about one peso for three bottles. That's about a penny a piece. And so he walks from place to place looking for things that he can collect to sell, bottles, cans, metal, things like that. He has a small garden, uh, but this year it produced nothing for he and his family of eight because of an historic dr uh, drought in our community there. Uh, so his, his garden produced nothing. On trash day, he goes from house to house, searching through the trash that people put out to find food, leftover scraps of things that he and his family might eat. And I've learned not to throw out food because he'll find it. Even if it's been out two or three days, he'll find it and he'll eat it and he'll feed it to his family. And so um, I save my leftovers, my, my food that, uh, that I don't think is edible anymore, and I put it in the refrigerator. And when he comes by, I, I give it to him. He never asks for anything. He's always looking for work. And so I'll often pay him to work in my yard. And he's an older man. He doesn't have um, really many tools to work with. And so he has a machete. And so he will come to my house and work in my yard, cutting my grass with a machete on his hands and knees, cutting grass for hours. When I bring him water as he works, he stops, he takes off his hat, he prays in thankfulness, he drinks his water, and he goes back to work. He can't read, he doesn't speak well, he is the lowest of the low in society in a third world country. Even poor people look down on this guy. He's a worker with no work to do. $100 would be a fortune for he and his family. If he found a job making $100 a month, that would be a fortune for he and his family. That would change everything for them. Some stability, knowing something was coming in, would change everything. Now let me ask you again, who here is rich? One report that I saw this week said that the average person, the average American, their personal wealth, an adult, is over $300,000, the average. If you do not understand yourself, perceive yourself as rich, then you will think this passage does not apply to you. And you will not obey it. And you will not feel the weight of its warning. So much like when we read instructions about widows in the New Testament, if we're not widows, we don't seek to obey those passages because those passages are not directly speaking to us. Now, we might understand them. We want to understand how they work. We want to understand how to apply them in our community. But we don't seek to obey them as passages that apply to us. And you shouldn't if you're not a widow. But here's the reality. You are rich. That is a fact. You are a rich Christian. And so Paul doesn't say, don't be rich. Quite the opposite. He says, get good at being rich. 
Now, those of you who are familiar with the prosperity gospel, you may hear that and be a little bit uncomfortable. And so I want to make a distinction. I want to make a distinction from the prosperity gospel. And, and it's this, that true Christianity takes great comfort in the reality that some will be rich and some will be poor in God's family. And neither is necessarily reflective of one's faith or maturity. Yet, how one lives as poor or rich, it speaks volumes about where they are placing their hope. The prosperity gospel tells the lie that God's desire for all his people is for them to be healthy, wealthy, and insulated from suffering. And if you're poor, sick, and suffering then your lack of faith, maturity, or biblical understanding is evident in that suffering or that sickness or that poverty. But that's not true Christianity. Because many times we see that our poor brothers and sisters, that they are the ones who are the most faithful, the most mature. So, how do we go about being rich? Paul says to, to Timothy to charge rich Christians to live in a certain way. Now, usually when we see someone being charged to do something, it's in a, in a public setting based on a certain position that they hold or are receiving. So, for example, the president of the United States is charged with preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution of the United States. A new husband may be charged with loving and serving his wife as part of their wedding ceremony. A pastor will often be charged with certain responsibilities of pastoral ministry as part of his ordination. So to be charged with something carries strong language of public exhortation and encouragement that often includes a witness or witnesses and a response of acceptation of the one being charged. And so this is strong language that the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy to use. It's a, it's a verb meaning to exhort and to challenge and to encourage, to press, to push, to put someone in a position where they have to say yes or no. Will I receive that charge or will I reject it? So as, as rich Christians, we are to be charged with a certain way of living. So what is that charge? So Paul lays out four aspects of this charge, much like four petals of a flower. And those flowers making up, or that, those petals making up that flower, they're part and parcel of one another. And so first, he says, rich Christians must not be haughty or prideful. We must reject the temptation to be proud of what we have and how we got it. This is very prominent in our culture, to be a self-made man or woman. I did these things. That's why I'm rich. I made good decisions. I didn't do all the things that all those other poor people did to make themselves poor. That is a very, very prideful way of looking at the world and discounts something we're going to see later about God and his provision. We must never succumb to the desire to consider ourselves better than people who have less than us. We must be careful not to make presumptions about why that person is poor. 
Second, we must not set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Earlier in the chapter, Paul has given a description of what he means when he says to set one's hope on riches. And so in verses 6 through 10, we see this. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So we see that setting one's hope on riches is reflected in a desire or love or craving for riches that leads to all types of harm and ruin. We wait for and pursue that which we have placed our hope in. If it is riches... It will be riches that we chase, be riches that we pursue. And so our affections and desires show us what we are hoping in. And then Paul goes so far as to mention some that have wandered away from the faith because they love riches more than they love God. So the words he uses here, they're a warning for us. Temptation, snare. Harmful, senseless, ruin, destruction, evil, pierce, pangs. Brothers and sisters, the problem we face is that we have stewed in the juices of a rich, crazed culture for so long that we have trouble identifying love of money. We have trouble identifying whether or not we have set our hopes on riches. Many times we call it stewardship or financial responsibility or wise investment strategy. But what if God is asking us to be unwise according to the world's financial standards and strategies? What if God is saying, I don't want that to be the basis by which you make your financial decisions? Don't be financially savvy. We see that this is evident in Paul's own statements about his finances. He says he will be content with only food and clothing. That's not very financially savvy. The word here expressed in the word contentment that Paul's using, it expresses his willingness to to live with what he has. But we, we miss a bit of what he's saying with the word content because we use the word content to simply mean a general acceptance of things. So imagine, you and I haven't seen each other for a while. Uh, you know, we, we come to greet one another and, and I say, I'm content to see you. You would say, hmm, j- just content? But the language that I'm learning, Haitian Creole, that's how we speak. We'd say, because the word in their language that way means exceedingly happy. And Paul uses the word the same way. An exceeding happy. I am so glad, so happy, satisfied to see you. 
And so Paul is saying that he is satisfied, joyful, content in food and clothing. Complete joy is what God has provided. Joy in simply food, simply clothing. And this is a radical financial strategy, so radical that many of us would say that that is unwise. Imagine, you've got a brother or sister in Christ, and they tell you, my goal for the rest of my life is to, to really, as far as possessions go, is to only have clothing and some food. You would think they're a crazy person. Like you would genuinely be concerned for them. You would probably talk to other brothers and sisters and say, hey, we need to sit with this person and, and try to convince them to be a little more um, wise or a little more thoughtful about their future. It is hard to set your hopes on riches when your personal wealth consists of some clothes and a little food. Paul has insulated himself from all these dangers that he just listed off through being content with some clothes and some food. The third aspect of Paul's charge back in verse 17 is that we should set our hope on God, who richly provides everything to enjoy. And so by simply introducing God into the equation of wealth, Paul changes everything. He shows that one can be wealthy and still trust and love and adore and worship and follow God. But how? Does one do that? By acknowledging that all we have comes from God and acknowledging his intention is that it would bring us joy. We set our hopes squarely on God by taking joy in him through what he gives. So let me ask you. Are the things that you have, the stuff that you have, is it making you joyful? That thing that you bought that you thought was going to make you happy, does it make you happy? Because you had a thought in your mind, I'm going to buy that thing, it's going to make me happy, and then it fails, right? So if God's intention is that all that he provides for us is to give us joy and satisfaction, how's that working out for you? Is all the stuff that God has provided for you, is it giving you joy? And if not... What then should we do? How do, how do we leverage the stuff that God has given us? How do we leverage it to provide joy in God? By using it to do good. We see in the fourth aspect of Paul's charge is that we should do good. And this is a summary statement of the little pieces that come after. Should do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. Paul says if you want an investment strategy that brings joy, be generous, be ready to share. If your stuff is not bringing you joy, because that's God's intention in the stuff he gave you, if it's not bringing you joy, what do you do with it? Be generous with it. Share it. Give it. So, how 
can we be ready to share? How can we be generous? I think first, for many of us, just making a plan. Make a plan about your giving. So it's the end of the year. Maybe you work for a company that gives bonuses. And you're already starting to make plans for that money. But what is your generosity plan for that money? What is your plan for sharing that money? Because God's giving it to you for your joy. And we see in the passage that that being generous with it is joy-inducing. So what's your plan? We should make a plan. We should sit down. We should pray about how God would have us give. One way that you can do that is by simply being generous towards the church that you call home. If you love this church, give to it. Every week you have an opportunity. Throw something in. Put something in. Make a long-term investment. Give to this church so that we can do more and serve more and love more and be more generous to people inside of this body and people outside of this body, to missionaries. All types of work that God is doing throughout the world. We want to be generous to that. God is giving us opportunities to be used that way. I want to share with you the four cause of giving and investment. Investing what God has given to you. So you can invest in coffee or cable or cars, or you can invest in God's kingdom. One is a much better long-term strategy of investment. For many of us, what we spend on drinks, entertainment, and comfort could be used radically for the advancement of God's kingdom. So um, I'm not great at math, but I'll, I'll do a little math problem for you. If we had 50 families at Northwake, no, I'm sorry, 100 families at Northwake, I'm going to make it even easier, 100 families at Northwake who gave $50 a month, individuals or families, that would be $5,000 a month, that would be $60,000 a year. We could pay off our mortgage of this building a year early if we just simply did that. Every bit counts. I tell people all the time, the, the institute that I run in Dominican Republic, if I had 40 people who give $40 a month for 40 months, I could run a seminary of up to 100 people for five years. For $40 a month, for what you spend, many of us on coffee, on the package for football that you like, right? The thing, that, 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 that car, you know, that you just had to have. The things that we just think will make us happy. God is giving us opportunity to make small, long-term investments that impact his kingdom and are good for you, are good for your heart. They're training for you. Look with me in verse 19. Paul helps us see what is at stake in our giving. When we set our hope on God as reflected in how we use what he gives We make a storehouse for the future, a foundation for the future life to come. Life to come that he says is truly life. And we take hold of this through a hope set on God, not what he gives. A life that pursues the giver, not the gifts. We have to be trained in this. This isn't just going to happen. And things like J-O-F are are good to train our hearts to give, to give, to give. And so imagine when the training wheels come off, right? 
what could we do with those funds? What will we do with those funds? What will God use those funds to do? God has given to us for joy, that we would enjoy him. We have a, a certain hope that, cannot be sh- that can't be shaken. Paul says riches are uncertain, but God is certain. So we have this certain hope that can't be shaken, and it's this, that God is generous. And his generosity is most clearly displayed by the giving of his own son to die for his enemies, for folks like you and I. When we were enemies of his, outside of his family, outside of his kingdom, he was generous towards us in Christ that we might become his children. That we might be like our father. Giving in very incredible ways, unexplainable ways, ways that seem on the front end, they seem a little unwise. They seem a little misguided. But our hope is that in doing that, that we might show that God is greater than the gifts that he gives. That as we give away the things that he gives us, we share the things he gives us, we're saying, God is greater than this thing, and he will provide for me. He will provide for me and my family. He loves me. He cares for me. He's my dad. And he's provided all these things for my joy. So as we end, I want to do something a little um, different than what we usually do. This passage is given to us in a letter from Paul to Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy, you charge rich Christians to live a certain way. And that that has a very public, uh, exhortative sort of feel to it. And so I want to do that this morning. I want for us to practice what Paul is telling Timothy to do. And so if you believe, hey, I, I do believe I'm a rich Christian. I believe this passage applies to me. I can see that. And I want to be more generous. I want to be ready to share. I want to be about doing good to others through the way that God has provided for me. If you want that, I want to ask you to stand up. And I want to charge you. I want to press you. I want to encourage you. I want to ask you. I want to call you to do these things we've been asked to do. And my hope is that your your heart will respond, yes, I want that. I want to be about that. I want to walk in that. I want to live in that. I want God to sustain that desire in me. And that's only something that he can do. So I'm going to charge you with these things, and we're going to pray that he would uphold those things in us. And so don't be haughty, and don't set your hopes on uncertain riches. Set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. Store up treasure for a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. And let's pray together that God would do that in us. Father, we do pray that this charge that you've given to us this challenge, this press, this push, this encouragement, this exhortation, that we would take it, we would receive it even publicly to say, yes, I want to be about those things. Will you work in me? 
Will you give me grace to do those things? God, we beg you to give us desires for this type of living. Our culture, the, the, the river of our culture flows so differently than this, and it will be an uphill swim for us, an upstream swim for us. And we ask that you would give us grace to swim that way, to walk that way, to live that way. God, let us get good at being the people that you've made us in the position of life that you've given us in the place where we live, that you might be shown as great, that people would look upon the generosity this church has to one another and to those outside, and that they would truly say, the giver is greater than the gift. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.